Hello and welcome to Stig Abel's Guide to Reading, a podcast in which I talk about books that mean something to me and to a very special guest. It's being made in conjunction with my own book, Things I Learned on the 628, which is out in November 2020, an account of a year I spent reading books on my commute. Remember doing that and came up with various theories about different types of literature, from crime fiction to American classics, from Shakespeare to poetry. This week, we're going to focus on modern literary fiction, whatever that means. In my book, I define it as a novel for which the advancement of plot is not the primary purpose. A literary novel does more than tell a story. It might, to use the words of John Steinbeck, sing a little song with language too. In the book, I wrote a chapter about three possible examples, Offshore by Penelope Fitzgerald, The Unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro, and The Corrections by Jonathan Fransom. One of them I couldn't finish. Can you guess which? My special guest is the novelist Kit Duval, who made her name with a book, My Name is Leon. Brilliant book back in 2016 and again with A Trick to Time a couple of years later. Her latest is Supporting Cast, short stories featuring characters from the novels. She is, as well as being a fine writer, a lovely person and has campaigned for greater inclusivity in the publishing industry when it comes especially to class and to race. Kit, hello. Hello, it's great to be here. And that was a fantastic introduction. It's so lovely to speak to you. Uh, The idea behind the podcast is we're going to each name a novel we love and say why we love it and maybe try and convince each other to read it. Uh, Before we get to to that, uh, Kit, shall I tell you which book I couldn't finish? Oh, I'm going to guess it was uh, The Corrections. No, it wasn't. No, really? I love The Corrections. Uh, It was The Ishiguru. And I I was recommended to read it by a literary editor. And then I, I got halfway through and I'd been having this battle with myself, which is for ages in my life, I don't know if you did this, I always finish books dutifully, even though yes. I didn't like them. Yes. And I've stopped doing it. Yes. What's your policy? I, I do think there's a source, if you're a writer, there's a sort of um, duty that you owe to another writer to give this book you know, your full attention and to not... Uh, abandon it just if the going gets hard because I ha- I read Star of the Sea by I think it was Joseph O'Connor in the period when I was dutifully finishing books and I can say two-thirds of the way through I was thinking oh my god I hate this and there was literally a passage that turned it around for me really I loved it I love that book I love it I got it I sort of got it you know it was it had worked away at me So I used to feel like that, and I don't now. I I really don't, and I would give a book a third, maybe a bit more than a third, especially if I sort of like like the author or know the author. But then there are too many books in the world to, you know, spend time with something you're not enjoying. The thing about the Ishiguro was I I then started reading about it, and everyone, well, lots of people fell over for it. This is the book he wrote after um, his big success, The Remains of the Day. And he'd said that The Remains of the Day was too simple a book. He sort of said it was like pressing a button over and over again. And so he set out to write this difficult book. And I could see it was brilliant, but it was kind of brilliantly boring. It was like draining the blood from a corpse. He'd taken all colour out of it. And I read one review, which was really praising. And it says, and sometimes you don't know if you're awake or asleep when you're reading this. I was like, I don't want a book where I don't know if I'm awake or not. I, I want a book to, to have colour and something. And it just didn't for me. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, Kit, where I know it's brilliant. And yes. I know it's very well written. And, you know, you could even say you could see the genius at work. But, yes. I, but I didn't enjoy it. No, I think I think that's really interesting. And, and an example of that for me, and, and a much more humble example, 
is that I write flash fiction and flash fiction is, you know, complete stories of 300 words. And I can remember writing this piece of flash fiction where I deliberately wanted to show off. And I was thinking, right, what can you do with 300 words? Yeah. This, this, this. And at the end, you had this sterile, overworked, flamboyant piece of shite. (laughs) I remember entering it for a competition and it got nowhere. And I was thinking, of course it doesn't. It's turgid and self-congratulatory and and just very, just sterile. That's the only word for it. All the magic had been worked out of it, like, you know, overworked dough that's never going to rise because you've just spent too much time on it and too much of your showy-offy tricks, if you like. And I I can understand, I mean, I didn't read The Unconsoled. I adored The Remains of the Day more than I can say. And if that's pressing a button over and over, I think you should do it more often. I agree with that. It's, it's a good way to get us into uh, the subject of, of literary fiction. Um, I quoted a bit of Steinbeck. He also he called it hoop to doodle, which is the sort of fancy stuff. And you can have a bit of it, he says, but it, it can't be too much, which I kind of agree with. Is it useful, Kit, uh, to talk about literary fiction or is there just good fiction and bad fiction, do we think? I think... I mean, I'm not one for for titles like that because I think it reinforces a type of snobbery and what you should read. And then you have people being ashamed of their writing, like people that say, oh, it's only women's fiction or, oh, it's just a small book. And then you have, you know, books that sort of are elevated beyond their talent and beyond their content just because they are wearing that label. I use it, it's a phrase I still use myself and I know that the publishing industry will will use it forevermore. So in that regard, it's useful to talk about. And I think there should be a way of talking about a distinction between books that are plot-driven and fantastic because of it, crime thrillers, which I adore, yeah. and lots of other types of books that just race along and are great. I recently read all of Mick Heron's books, for example. Yeah. And then the other type of, of literature, which might have really quite a subtle or slow burning or secondary uh, plot, to sometimes to the writing and sometimes to the characters, often both. And I, I do love that sort of writing. It's my first choice always. Um, and I do think there should be a way of us talking about it without being exclusive and without denigrating other types of literature. Because it's one of those phrases where it probably is elitist and it might put people off. But on the other hand, we all know what we mean, don't we? It's like, yes. it's not genre fiction. And like you, no. I love genre fiction. I read more genre fiction than than anything else. But I do know what I mean by literary fiction. And there's some things that sort of cross in, into both. But I think it's a phrase that you can't stop using because we know what we're, we're talking about and therefore it's useful because it's meaningful. Yes, absolutely. And and I think we have to have a phrase to describe this type of literature and literary fiction is as good as any. I think it's probably been hijacked by certain areas of the literary world that just, you know, it's snobby about it. Yeah. Tell us, tell us the book you've suggested because I've not read this person. So I, I'm going to be the target audience for this podcast because I'm going to go and read it afterwards. So, so tell me who you've picked. Okay, I'm choosing Donal Ryan and I'm choosing Strange Flowers, which is his latest one. And I'm only choosing it because it's his latest book, because he is the writer that if I could write like anyone, it is it is absolutely him. A hundred percent. I first came across him when you know, I mean, I, I am a sucker for a cover and I can remember going <laughs> into Waterstones and picking 
got this book and thinking that oh I like the look of that I'll buy it didn't even open it didn't didn't care particularly got home and I was just beginning to write at this time just sort of thinking about writing a novel and taking my writing very very seriously read it and felt nothing but distress I was so gutted that he had done what I was trying to do both with language and with form and I just I mean I I didn't even have a moment of pleasure with it I was distressed it was like oh my god why am I bothering he's done it and what was that kit what was he doing that's interesting so simple I mean it's simplicity uh disguised absolutely gut-wrenching first of all it's written in the close third he he wrote he writes most of his books in the close third so that is the third person but it's as close to being in the first person as possible so it's, it's the first person but writing about themselves in the third if you like it's it's great it's the it's the form that i love so first of all he writes like that then he writes about the ordinary Everything is about an ordinary person. You know, it's not about a murder. It's not about a bank job. It's not about anything extraordinary. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. But because of that, it has this resonance because we are, most of us, ordinary and do ordinary things. And we can see ourselves living these lives or the people that we know. So it's very on a plane where we can all identify with. And then he's just the bloody master of language. He can say sentences that you read and are shocked because of their simplicity, but also their magic. And if I could describe it any better, I would, but I can't because he he's the master as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he gets right under the skin of these um, very ordinary people and, and makes them sing he makes everything about their lives of interest and sing and he makes um very very ordinary jobs seem interesting this this particular book um is speaking about a man who works the land he's also a part-time postman in ireland in the 70s and i i am the least the last person to want to read about nature i am such an urban person um, but somehow I find myself reading about hedgerows and blackberries and the different greens of the land it, it, because he just makes it magic. He's, you know, he's fantastic. This particular book, Strange Flowers, is about uh, a couple whose daughter, they wake up one morning and their daughter has left home. She's uh, 19, I think, and it's the 70s. She's gone to, um, well, they don't know where she's gone. So first of all, we spend a couple of years with these people mourning the loss of their daughter and having to explain to a very small Irish uh, village in the 70s where their daughter might have gone. And of course, the gossip is that she's got pregnant and disappeared. And then one morning she comes back and and the story is off. Where has she been? Uh. And one of the things that she's done, and it won't be that much of a surprise, is that she has got married, but she has married a black man. And the black man comes to find her and decides to stay in Ireland. And again, this is the 70s. And so it's it's the story of this completely out of his zone, comfort zone, black man, living in Ireland and being accepted and finding his way through. It's also the story of his wife who's come back and why she left him. 
because she's a serial leaver and lots of secrets, obviously family secrets. It's absolutely beautifully written, horribly beautifully written. Every time I read it, I feel upset that I can't do it, <laughs> no matter how hard I try. And I would recommend him and every single one of his books to everybody. He's been twice longlisted for the Booker Prize, absolutely deservedly. And we are all, everyone that knows his writing is waiting for him to win. You cannot get a better endorsement. There's loads of things you've said there that I'm interested in. Uh, nature writing. Before we get to, to him, I, uh, Virginia Woolf said that nature and letters seem to have a natural antipathy. Bring them together <laughs> and they tear each other to pieces. Uh, and one of my least favorite aspects of the modern world is that is nature writing, which is trying to be poetic and isn't. Uh, I cannot bear it. Don't describe another meadow. I don't want to know what a meadow looks like. I, I can't bear it. I really can't. It's got to be seamlessly woven into or part of a plot for me. I yeah. can't just talk about leaves and meadows. I, I can't do it. I call it the crows bickering in wintry trees fallacies. The, the excitement of an author of, of discovering a metaphor to describe um, describe nature. It sends it sends me mad. Um, the other thing I'm struck by is how much do you need to care about the characters, and even beyond that, Kit, how much do you need to like them? Because I think I'm an unsophisticated reader in that I need to like at least one person. Yes, all the beautiful writing in the world can't make me read something where I don't care about the characters. I have to want someone to succeed. Um, if you think about, if we, if we go to the remains of the day where you have this man who is completely closed down and making all sorts of mistakes, and he's very, you know, he's not particularly, you know, this is written in the first person, and he's not particularly nice, it's an unreliable narrator, he's very full of himself, he tells lies, he's a snob, and yet you really, really want him to succeed, which is one of the magic parts of the book. And I think you have to, uh, and by succeed, I mean find peace and happiness. I don't yeah. mean that any other way. Um, you want them to have the resolution that is good for them, whether they recognise that or not. And I definitely agree with that. I have to care about somebody in the book and preferably the main character. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And, and when, when you don't, and that's again, often in some literary books, because they're so keen to strike a, a sort of artistic note, Yes. They lose a bit of the heart. And, and I think if there's no beating heart of a book, which is why actually I did like the corrections actually in, in the end, because I think you do care about the character. You don't like all of them, but you, that you like them enough that you yes. want to make sure that everyone is okay or everyone at least fulfills what they might fulfill or, or there's something. And, you know, I didn't like Mad Men. Everyone rolled over for Mad Men because it had smoking in it and everyone looked beautiful in their clothes. <laughs> Once you took out the fact that, oh, it's cool that people are smoking and they all look amazing, I didn't want a single person in that show to prosper. I watched four episodes. I thought, well, well, sod it. I mean, I'm sure it's brilliant. and I could admire it. Again, you know, it comes back to this point. I don't want to just admire something. I, yes. I, want to, I want it to feel it in my stomach rather than just sort of my brain process how good it is. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and I think that was one of the great things about The Sopranos is that you've got Tony Soprano, a monster in every way, but human. Um, you know, you, you identified with his, his desires. And just coming back to nature writing, which, you know, I don't particularly like, Amy Liptrot, who wrote The Outrun yeah. uh, years ago, 
absolutely beautifully written and beautifully realized and it's because we wanted her to succeed she's on this island after going through a very very hard time and so her nature writing and her experience of nature was healing for other things it wasn't just i'm going to you know write, write about these birds in a nest it was this is helping me get over a very bad time and that was nature writing at its most beautiful because you cared about the person writing about the nature and you could go with it for her um, how common is it Kit, in your experience for a sort of multiracial perspective in an, a novel to be done convincingly um it's one of the things that you know it gives me a twitch every time i think oh god i've got to read this book you know are they going to get it right and because obviously i'm mixed race you i i have and anyone that's mixed race has a sort of um, tender spot, shall we say, where it, it is a different experience to have a white parent and to have a black parent. You are a, a black person, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But there is a whole other side to your identity. And because Donald's writing about being half black and half Irish, which is, is what I am, I sort of did read it with trepidation. Donald and I are good friends, and he never asked me a single question about this book. For good reason, because I would have felt obliged to to say I liked it and obliged to get behind it, and he didn't want me to do that. Uh, so when I read it, I was like, "Oh my God, please don't all get it right." And he really, really has to the extent, and this is quite brave of anyone who's writing about black people, is that he has made one of the people in the book look white. Uh, so a mixed race person who could quite easily and does pass for white and my son is mixed race and completely looks like a white person and he's he you know he had blonde hair and in fact he looked airy and I wouldn't even say he was white <laughs> and he D- Donal has played with that he has played with that aspect of being mixed race where it is up to you when you tell people or if you tell people that you're black and if you are one of these people that can pass for being black People will say things about black people in front of you because they don't know your heritage. They don't know what you think. And you hear what people say and what people really think about black people and how they may change when a black person is present. And I I mean, that's a real phenomenon if you're mixed race. And it's really interesting that Donald's included that in the book. And it doesn't matter that he's not mixed race because this is a this seems to me to be quite a, an important part of the current literary debate. He he was able to to write that um, accurately because he understood at a human level. It didn't matter what his own background was. Yes, he. I mean, he's he's written this what 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 people call cultural appropriation, which I've written about a lot, and he's written from. So there are several points of view in the book. So there is a point of view of at least three white Irish people and then this mixed race boy and he's done it very well and I mean he didn't ask me about it I know he had a sensitivity reader and I know he certainly did his homework I think for good reason he didn't ask me because I'm his friend but he's done it very very well and I don't have a problem with people writing in the voice of the other provided you have done your homework you have done your research you are writing about this from a place of discovery and from a place of respect. Yeah. 
and not because you are exploiting anybody. And I think that's the most or, or getting it wrong, stereotyping all those things that a lot of us do when we don't know a community very well and when we think we do. And so you have some works of art littered with the Asian shopkeeper or the sexy Latino mama or whatever stereotypes people think that black people and people of colour inhabit. So he's done it very, very well, obviously. And we all know about the Ferrari about American Dirt, where a woman didn't do it very well. A woman writer didn't do it very well, Um, probably with the best of intentions, but you know, you can definitely run into hot water. It's all about good faith, isn't it? Yes. My wife is mixed race, and so my children are mixed race, but as you say, you didn't really necessarily know it to look at it. And it's made me more more conscious because I talk to my wife and she tells me stories because she probably lives in a very non-racist world now. Yeah. We live in London, very multicultural. We're sort of professionals in our 40s now. Uh, and she probably had quite a sheltered life. But even now she tells me stories about the things she was because she's half Caribbean and yeah. so she looks like any race I mean she could go almost anywhere in the world and you'd think she was yeah. she was she was from that country you know anywhere in southern Europe anywhere in the Middle East anywhere in India she has that that look where you couldn't quite place her but she looks like yes. she could be from there and to me I innocently enough I always assumed life had been straightforward and yes. and actually it kind of had in lots of respects but even within that a quite a sheltered quite a happy life moments of sort of gut-wrenching awfulness yes yes and it's easy to forget that exists and and, and when you're writing you've got to be sure that your audience who've had that life-shaping experience is going to read it and feel you're testifying to that because if if you don't that's when you can be legitimately accused of appropriation absolutely when you when you're writing from a place of privilege in that this hasn't happened to you and you're still not understanding what it is to happen to someone else. Or sometimes you're making such a big deal about it in, in the wrong way. Yeah. You're missing the point of the slight. You're missing the point of the racism. And you're not giving your character the appropriate reaction to that slight or to that racism. That They're the things that annoy me. That's when I read a book and I think, oh, my God, why have you done that? That's so not it especially when people try and describe from the inside what it is to be mixed race and what my reaction as a mixed race person is going to be to this. And, you know, it's cringeable. It really is. I'm going to go and read that, that book and then hopefully read all of his books. Uh, I mean, and one of the great joys in life, you and I, we did a BBC thing together called The uh, 100 Books That Shape the World. Yeah. The great joy is, is pushing a book on someone knowing they'll enjoy it. Let me try one on you then, which I think you'll really like. It's Offshore by Penelope Fitzgerald. Do you know much about her or that book? Fitzgerald has passed me by. When I started reading, I read, uh, and I was in my 20s, I started reading the classics and they are dominated by men. I read far, far, far too many men and and old men. It's great. Absolutely no problem with reading that. But it means I've got huge, huge gaps with more contemporary um, women writers like Penelope Fitzgerald, like Iris Murdoch, yep. like uh, Anita Bruckner, they've just passed me by and I have never rectified it. And she's definitely the top of the list. You, you'll probably have a lot of empathy with her because she's a late starter in writing, which a bit like you, because you didn't start writing in your 20s, did you? you? Or you didn't start getting published in your 20s? Oh, no, no. I was published when I was 55 or 6. 
So Penelope was 61. Oh, wow. And she published her first novel because she had a terminally ill husband and he died before it appeared. And she wrote the book to entertain him on his deathbed. Uh, her first novel. So she's 61. And actually, if you look at the, I was looking at it for the book, the sort of canon of, of books, quite a lot of people start late. So George Eliot was 39. Uh, mm-hmm. Raymond Chandler was 44. Uh, Watership Down, Richard Adams, he was 54. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, which is you know, a very contemporary book, you know, Gail Honeyman. She was 45 when she wrote that. God. There's possibly an argument, I wonder if you would buy this, that life experience is good uh, when, when becoming a novelist. Oh, I, I know, had I started writing in my 20s, it would have been utter shite. I <laughs> had any empathy with a lot of people. I thought I knew everything. I was quite cocky. And it would have been flowery nonsense. Um, for me, yes, I think there is something great about writing when you've had some of life's knocks, when you have come to a realisation how little we know about life, even though we know more than we did when we were 20. Having said that, I have just read a book by Niche Dolan called Exciting Times. She's in her 20s, I think, or, or maybe very, very early, or late late 20s, possibly. It's brilliant. It's clever. And I don't know how some young people do it. I'm, I'm reading for the uh, Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. So everybody's under 30 and it is humbling. Yeah, People can do it, um, completely can do it in their 20s. Um, but for me and lots of people like me, I think, thank God, I wasn't writing my 20s and unleashed onto the world. Well, I honestly think this is a book for you offshore because... She had this quite a miserable life. She was from a quite a well-connected family, you know, quite a posh family. She's one of the first women to go to Oxford, really clever woman. But then her husband uh, was a disbarred solicitor. They had no money. And so she went to live on a barge in Battersea Reach and the boat sank. And she was a teacher at the time and she had to go late to school with the, the excuse, I'm sorry I'm late, my house sank. <laughs> but the book is about people living on the barges of Battersea Reach in London And it's a mishmash of people who haven't quite made it, who sort of are struggling to to survive. And she said, uh, there's a lovely quote, which I think I know you'll agree, because it's it's true of your fiction, I think, as well. She said, I was drawn to people who seem to have been born defeated or even profoundly lost. They're ready to assume the conditions the world imposes on them. but They don't manage to submit to them despite their courage and best efforts. When I write, it is to give these people a voice. Goodness, wow. Uh, And so you end up with these. So it's basically a story a bit taken from her own life. There's a mum called Nena on a boat with two children, Martha and Tilda, and the husband's disappeared. And there's other sort of misfits. There's a retired captain. Uh, there's a painter who can't make any money. And there's a rent boy called Morris, who is kind of a philosopher. And they're, they're just not quite making it. And then the book is this sort of charming combination of, of, sort of their lives. And it's, it's sort of it's ambivalent. So there's moments where it, it gets sort of, high levels of art around how it describes the river and their life but it always just undermines it so it never does that nature writing thing yes uh let me read a bit there's loads of quotes from him um she's talking about the the boats where they live in the river it says the river's edge where virgil's ghosts held out their arms in longing for the farther shore and dante as a living man was refused passage by the ferryman the few planks that mark the meeting point of land and water there surely is a place to stop and reflect 
even if, as Father Watson did, you stumble over a 10-gallon tin of creosote. And it's that point where you think, oh, she's getting all pompous. And then someone stumbles over a tin of creosote. Brings it down. It brings it home. It's great. So I just kind of felt that, that you might, this might be one for you because it's, it's a short book. The book it reminded me a bit of, I don't know how much you've read. Have you ever met, read much John Steinbeck? Um, I've read a lot of John Steinbeck. It reminded me of Cannery Row. Um, what a great book. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, and it reminds me, it's a bit like a British Cannery Row because it's misfits. It's yes. misfits on a river, uh, misfits by the water, which Canary Row is obviously by the Pacific Ocean. And it's just these people, and it's so controlled, the writing. And that's the thing I, I like. Is it a series of stories, or is it sort of one story and how they interact with one another? It's one story. It's, a se- it's basically the family, which is based on her own family. And then it's the people around which they live. And it's so very sort of 70s Britain. You know, you talk about 70s Ireland. It's it's very like it's it's so British. Um, so that she has a row with her husband before her uh, before he leaves about where she had put his squash rackets while he was away. Uh, so it's that sort of kind of dowdy Britishness, you know, struggling along. Even in in London, it's you know it's Battersea Reach, but it's just got something of the of the of the real tactile real, um, yes. which is which is is so important. And you know, she won the Booker Prize for it in 1979, which I. Oh which I think was a shock. Fantastic. Um, so I think you'll, you, you'll like it. It's good on the river. I don't know if you, I was trying to work out books that are good on the, on the water, books that describe water very well. Uh, oh, that's interesting. And she did that. She, so I've got a few. See if you like any of these. Wind in the Willows. Yes, love Wind in the Willows. Absolutely. Uh, amazing, on the, amazing on the water. Um, uh, uh, Alice, Dar- Alice Oswald wrote a book called Dart. She's a poet. Have you, have you read that? And, and if we can just talk about your book for a moment, uh, the things I learned on the six to eight, um, I got to the poetry section and I cannot read poetry. And I thought, no, no, you're going to read this. You know, you're going to read what you have to say about poetry. And I have to say, you nearly sold me poetry. <laughs> and amazing achievement because no one's managed to do that yet. Oh, bless you. Cause I think it's hard, isn't it? And, Yes. I really struggled with Rumi because it really frustrated me the way that was. Yeah, I mean, and it's so overquoted. You know, it's the cause of many bad tattoos. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's such a good way of putting it. I, I ended up with, uh, I loved Byron and I loved Emily Dickinson. Um, and it's just moments where you just get something distilled down. And I, I think in some ways that's what writing's about, isn't it? When you can distill an idea into something. And that's, yes. that's over the course either of, you know, a book or a passage. Or if you can yeah. distill it down to three or four words, you're you're really doing something. But what it comes down to to me, uh, Kit, why I love talking to you, when we did that thing for the BBC, it was such a pleasure. Is there anything better in life than reading something where you form a connection, where you just think, I don't know what it is. It's just people who don't read, I, I think it's not having that in their lives must be a, a real absence, mustn't it? I, I agree. And I, I've, I've got a couple of friends that don't read at all. And when I got published, um, I remember them thinking, oh, I might write, I might write a book. And I was like, you don't read. <laughs> um, and I think people that don't read are missing out on other lives. You know, they will always be looking at the world through their own prism, completely through their own experience. From where they stand, the world is spread out before them and they will always have the same horizons. And when you read and you're in someone else's skin, 
and you look at something through their eyes, you there's no other way of doing it as well as you can do this. Because, of course, you can go and live with someone else, but you're still taking your own eyes. You're still taking your own childhood and experience. But when you read and you have been with someone often from the cradle and here you are with a broken heart and, you know, at the at the end of your life. And you really understand what it is to be that person with those experiences and to live in the Middle Ages and to, you know, to, or to, to be in a rocket or to be in the, in the Second World War. Not, nothing else but literature can do that to actually give you a different skin. Yeah. Uh, and you do such a great amount of work trying to open that world up to everyone as readers and writers, don't you? That's that's what drives you. Yes, it is what drives me completely. Um, so that people who do have a very unique life experience, and the life experience of most of the UK is not upper middle class, um, and to have people be able to have the opportunity to write about their own life experience and the life experience of lots of people like them, uh, working class people so that other people can understand their lives and also so other working class people can see their lives on the page which is really really important so that you can as well as reading about people that we don't have anything in common with it is also fabulous to read something written by someone that you do have something in common with it's why I read a lot of Irish literature because I can hear my grandmother and I I know what someone means when they say something and it, it, it's very attractive and warming to me so we also want to read about our own life experience or someone like us um so that we can say i know that i can remember when i read angela's ashes yeah. and it's about you know obviously it's about poverty and there's a, a, a chapter in there where uh, this little boy has to deliver a flask of hot food to his father and he's starving and there's only enough hot food for his father. So all the family hot food is in this flask. And he decides to open it and eat it. And I can remember reading this and absolutely killing myself with laughter. And everyone was going, oh, isn't that terrible? I was going, it's fantastic because I've done that. And I can remember that same feeling of hunger and the only being enough food for my father. And so when I read that, I thought, this is true. This is real. He has described hunger and the thoughts that go on in your mind when you're hungry and you're presented with food that you shouldn't eat or that you're going to have to steal. He he absolutely nailed it. And it was fantastic to read. Someone writing about food poverty really moved me. I, I loved the book and I gave it to my brothers and sisters saying, read this book. It's hilarious. Yeah. Then I remember people saying it was miserly. And I was going, was it? Was, was that really miserable? Because I, I found it really funny because it had touched that very tender uh, nerve of, of childhood mis misdemeanours for me. Uh, well, listen, I could talk about books with you uh, for a very long time. Let's just give our recommendations clearly so people can go off and read them. Mine is Offshore by Penelope Fitzgerald. Yours is Strange Flowers by Donal Ryan. What a great pleasure talking to you, Kit. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me.